Daniel Simons is a professor at the University of Illinois who is most famously known for his study on what is called inattention blindness. Now, some of you may or may not have seen what people now know as the invisible gorilla test, which is basically, if you haven't seen it, it's, it's this test where you're asked to see how many times there's uh, these two teams, one team in white shirts, one team in black shirts, and you're asked to say, uh, not asked to say, you're, you're asked to see if you can count how many times the white team passes the ball back to each other. And so the video starts and the white team is passing the ball and the black team is passing the ball, but you're only supposed to pay attention to the white team. And then at the end of the video, the, uh, Daniel Simon says, how many times did the white team pass the ball? Now, for those of you who've seen the video, you know that the point isn't actually to figure out how many times the white team passed the ball. The point is the next question he asks. He says, how many of you saw the dancing gorilla? Now, in his study, 50% of the people saw the dancing gorilla, 50% of the people did it. Now, this wasn't uh, overwhelmingly uh, uh, convincing to a lot of people about uh, Daniel Simon's theory of inattention blindness. And so he came up with another video after a lot of people saw this. And, and the next video, another version, it really is a lot like the first one. We have two teams again, one in white shirts, one in black shirts. And, and again, they start passing the ball and he says, hey, pay attention to the teams in white and see how many times they pass the ball. Now, if you're familiar with the Invisible Gorilla illustration like I was when I first saw this, I wasn't primarily looking at the team in white. I was kind of, but I was really looking for the gorilla because I saw that I, I, I almost missed it the first time. I actually didn't miss it. I saw it, but, uh, I, but I wasn't going to miss it the second time. And so uh, for those who saw the video, again, he asked how many times did the team in white pass the ball? And I'm like, ah, oh, it's 13. Yes, 13. And then he goes, now, some of you saw the gorilla, right? And I'm like, yes, I saw the gorilla. You're not going to pull one over me on, on me. And then he goes, did you see the curtains change color? And I'm like, what? And then he goes, and if you saw that, did you notice that one of the team, uh, one of the players in black literally left off screen in the middle of this? And I'm like, what? I, I totally didn't catch that. Now, the point of this psychological experiment was all about proving that Focusing your attention on one thing has the ability to keep you distracted from other things, right? That sounds fair, right? And as this is true in the psychological sense, this illustration is one that is also true when it comes to pursuing a growing and submitted life of faith in Jesus Christ as master and savior. Because if we're not careful, there are things in this life that can demand our attention and affection in such a way that they distract us from the attention and the affection towards God that a life devoted to God requires. In the calendar of the Christian church, there really isn't another tradition that a majority of churches observe quite like the tradition of celebrating the resurrection of Jesus Christ, what we popularly know as Easter. And throughout the history of the church, there have been many ways that churches have tried to incorporate into their regular rhythms a preparation of their hearts and minds for the season. In this series, uh, The Heart Matters, uh, really, this is our attempt to prepare our hearts and prepare our minds for Holy Week uh, in a way that forces us to take a solemn inventory of our lives, to take a solemn look at our sin and our need for repentance as well, as well as a solemn look at the realities of the price Jesus paid so that we could be rescued from sin and restored into right relationship with God the Father. 
So if you remember in week one, we learned to say this along the way. We learned to say these couple things. One, in week one, we learned this. We learned to say this. Lord, humble me. I am nothing compared to you. God, you are great. I am not. And week two, we learned to say, Lord, forgive me. Lord, forgive me. Forgive me. I repent. I am a sinner and I'm in desperate need of you. And then last week, we learned that the most appropriate thing that we can say when caught fighting temptation in our lives is to, uh, you know, really fighting the temptation to follow our will and our ways instead of God's wills and God's ways is, is this. The thing we learned to say is this, Lord, it's my fault. It's my fault. It's not your fault. There is something inside of me, Lord, not outside of me that leads me to desire to live life my way for my will instead of your way for your will. It's my fault. This week, I'm hoping that we would learn to confront the things in this life that can demand our attention and affection in such a way that they distract us from the attention and affection that God desires, that a life in God, a life devoted to God, requires. And I'm hoping that we can learn to say this, Lord, I give up. I give up. I give up the distractions. I I, I give up the idols that keep you from being all-sufficient and sovereign over all of my life. One of the best examples that I know of how we can learn to understand this comes from a story I grew up hearing in Sunday school about a person by the name of Josiah. Now, it makes sense that Sunday school teachers would want uh, us as kids to understand the story of Josiah, uh, and, and more particularly about how we know who God is and what he has done from this story. And uh, well, mostly it's because Josiah himself was a kid. Look here in Second Chronicles chapter 34, it says this, Josiah was eight years old when he became king. Eight years old. And he reigned 31 years in Jerusalem. Now, for those of you who don't know, I have an eight-year-old that lives in my house. And the thought of her running a nation, I don't even want to talk about it. Just don't even want to talk about it. I'd rather not entertain it. But this was the case. Here was Josiah. He was eight years old. And and as we know from what the writer of this historical literature uh, describes, uh, he was a great king. In fact, it says this in verse two. He did what was right in the Lord's sight and walked in the ways of his ancestor David. He did not turn aside to the right or to the left. Now, for those of you who are familiar with the events uh, around where God gave the Ten Commandments, particularly in Deuteronomy 4, uh, 5, and 6, you'll know that uh, this this idea of right, left, not turning right or left, is one of the uh, most famous commands that, that God gives to those who would follow him. In fact, it says this in Deuteronomy 5, 32 to 33, be careful to do as the Lord your God has commanded you. You are not to turn aside to the right or the left. Follow the whole instruction the Lord your God has commanded you so that you may live, prosper, and have a long life in the land you will possess. So uh, the question is this, what are those commands? Like, what are, what are those commands? Are they the Ten Commandments? Mm, not exactly. I mean, they are included in the command, but the command is actually found just a few verses later when the Lord says this in Deuteronomy 6, verses 4 to 5. It says this, Listen, Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, is the great Shema. 
And then here's a command. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and all your strength. Of course, this is the same command that Jesus recited when he was asked by the religious leaders, teachers, which command in the law is the greatest? And he said to them, guess what he said? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the greatest and most important commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets depend on these two commands. Now, in Josiah's context, doing what was like, quote, right in the sight of the Lord and walking in the way of his ancestors to love the Lord, his God, with all his heart, soul, and strength, uh, what that meant for, for him in his context was removing all the idols that had seemed to overwhelm every reach of his responsibility as king. But what you need to understand is that the heart behind getting rid of the idols wasn't one that was coming out of an arrogance that said like, you know, what you guys are doing are wrong and, and I know how to do it and, and shame on you for worshiping idols. Shame on you and I've got this right and uh, shame on you. No soup for you, right? And this isn't, this isn't what he was saying. In fact, in his heart, Josiah's heart was really to make, you know, really to make this idea of loving the Lord with all his heart, mind, and soul come from a place of humility and not, not like this uh, seemingly righteous anger. In fact, we know this because in 2 Chronicles uh, 34, 26 through 27, it says this. Say this to the king of Judah, this is Josiah, and he said, who sent you to inquire the Lord. This is what the Lord God of Israel says. As for the words you have heard, because your heart was tender and you humbled yourself before God when you heard his word against this place and against its inhabitants, and because you humbled yourself before me and you tore your clothes and wept before me, I myself have heard this is the Lord's declaration. So here we have Josiah and his heart. It's coming out of place of humility that he really just wants, he really just wants to live a life right before the Lord. And so the question is, then how does this like apply to us, right? <laughs> I mean, what does this even mean for us? Well, here, here are a couple of my thoughts. First, if we want to be the kind of people who live out the greatest commandment to love God with all our heart, soul, and strength, then we need to remove the things that compete for our affection for God. I mean, you can call these distractions, Many theologians and students of the Bible uh, sometimes call these idols. And you may not like either one of those words, but here's what I know. There are things in my life that I know can distract me. There are idols in my life that if I let them can keep me from having my relationship with God be the most central, be the most essential, be the most influential, be the most vital relationship in my life. Maybe you don't struggle to have your relationship with Christ be the main source of meaning, value, and identity in life, but I know that many other people struggle with distractions. Many people just struggle with idols, which keep us from having God sit literally on the throne of our hearts as Lord, as Savior, as Master. And as I said at the beginning of this message, I, I, I'm hoping today that we can learn to say this, Lord, I give up. I give up. I give up the distractions. I give up the idols that keep you from being all-sufficient and sovereign over all my life. Now, just to be clear, the, the end game of these temptations are all the same. Distractions and idols in our lives are, 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 have the end game of, of, of the same thing, keeping us from 
the Lord being the, the, the very center of our life. But there are also two very distinct things. Uh, just for clarity's sake, a distraction is anything that would want to keep you from remembering that as a follower of Christ, your life is not your own. And that your life was rightly set free and purchased so that you could be the very temple in which the Holy Spirit lives. 1 Corinthians 16, 19-20 tells us that. But how does this actually work in, in real life? Well, for some people, it's current events, right? Now, it's one thing to watch the news, but it's another thing to be consumed by it. Uh, whether, whether it's living for every bit of info on the coronavirus or, you know, maybe it's not coronavirus, but for you, maybe it's, it's politics, or maybe it's not politics. Maybe, maybe, maybe for you, it's, it's the newest trade transactions that happen in, in your favorite sport. But if truth be told, if news was a Bible app, was a, was a Bible reading plan, then you'd probably be a professor of theology right now. Some people, the distraction is anxiety about the future. It's one thing to have questions and concerns, but it's another thing to be anxious about your life. I mean, Jesus himself taught this. In Matthew 6, he said, Therefore I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, or the toilet paper that you will acquire, right? No, it's not in there really. But he said this, or about your body or what you will wear. Isn't life more than food and the body more than clothing? But seek first, and here's the point, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and these things will be what? Provided for you. Maybe it's not anxiety. Maybe for you it's because you're, you're engaged in the pursuit of providing for the basic needs of your life that you just seem to kind of get caught up in it, right? I mean, you wanted to pay the bills, but now you live for work. Uh, maybe the original desire was to get in shape, but now you live for the gym. Maybe, maybe your, intentional, uh, your, your initial desire was to be a good parent, but now... But now you find yourself living for every activity, every event, or every experience that you can provide for your kids. And then we find ourselves in a reality where it feels like time is a costly commodity for us. And all of a sudden, we don't have time. We don't have time. I don't have time. I'm too busy. Too busy to spend in prayer. I'm too busy to spend time with God in prayer and to hear from his word and uh, and, and, and I'm definitely too busy to accomplish his mission by engaging deeply in relationships with other believers. And, and I for sure don't have time to reorganize my life to live it as family with those who I consider my local church. And even less time to live it on mission with them, with God. And really, it's at this point, things which once started as distractions can become idols. And the difference between an idol and distraction is this. An idol, as Tim Keller best defines in his book, Counterfeit Gods, is this. An idol is whatever you look at and say in your heart of hearts. If I have that, then I'll feel my life has meaning. Then I'll know I have value. Then I'll feel significant and secure. And there are many ways to describe that kind of relationship to something, but perhaps the best one is worship. So what started as a distraction now becomes an idol. And distraction of worry turns into idol control, where you find yourself saying things like, life only has meaning, or I only have worth if I'm able to get control over my life in the area of whatever it is, filling in the blanks, making sure my kids get on the right soccer team, making sure this or that, and blah, blah, blah. What was a distraction now becomes an idol, because your life now becomes consumed by this. 
The distraction of busyness turns into an idol of approval or, or maybe accomplishment where you find yourself saying things like this, life only has meaning or I only have worth if I earn love, if I earn the love and the respect of others or, or I accomplish the things that I set my heart on, the dreams that I place before me. So here's the question. What are some of the distractions or idols in your life that are keeping you from leaning into God as the provider for all you need and the source from which you draw meaning and joy? What are some of the decisions you have made that, if truth be told, don't really don't do much to accomplish God's will in your life, but only do much to distract you from God's will in your life? What are some of the lies that you've been led to believe? Idols which want you to believe that you can, listen, by your own power, gain the freedom and control that you're entitled to, that you deserve. But in the end, they're lies that just find you a slave. They are idols that just find you a slave to them. In the next few moments, we're going to transition to um, just kind of a blank slide with just some quiet instrumental music. And I'm going to ask that all of us, though, we may be separated by location in unity together in the same spirit and in heart and mind, I would hope that we together would take time to really pray a prayer of repentance for the ways in which God has been relegated to a lesser position in the list of priorities of our lives. During this time, I I want to encourage you to invite God to reveal any idols that are in your life or, you know, anything that, that you have been considering more important to you than God, anything that absorbs your heart and imagination more than God, anything that you seek really that to, uh, uh, to, to give you what only God can give, anything so central and essential to your life that should you lose it, your life would feel hardly worth living. And then what I would love for us to do is just to begin to ask God to reveal how we are, how we should maybe reorganize our life around his will and his way instead of trying to fit God into our will and our ways. To say no to the things that are distracting us from an intimate relationship with him or, or the things that we have allowed, the idols we've allowed to to take his rightful place in our lives. After a few minutes of doing that, we'll have one last song of worship. And really, I hope it's a song that that could be our anthem as we seek to increasingly learn what it means to pray. Lord, I give up. I give up the distractions. I give up the idols that keep you from being all-sufficient and sovereign over all my life.